And now a reading from Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 4 through 11. John was in the wilderness, calling for people to be baptized in order to show that they were changing their hearts and lives and wanted God to forgive their sins. Everyone in Judea and all the people of Jerusalem went out to the Jordan River and were being baptized by John as they confessed their sins. John wore clothes made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist. He ate locusts and wild honey. He announced, One stronger than I am is coming after me. I'm not even worthy to bend over and loosen the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. About that time, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and John baptized him in the Jordan River. While he was coming up out of the water, Jesus saw heaven splitting open and the Spirit like a dove coming down on him, and there was a voice from heaven, You are my Son, whom I dearly love. In you I find happiness. Here ends the reading. May God grant us wisdom and courage for interpretation. Know thyself. That phrase was carved into stone at the entrance to Apollo's temple at Delphi in Greece, according to legend. Scholars, philosophers, and civilizations have debated this question for a very, very long time. Was this phrase, know thyself, actually carved there, or is it just a folk tale? These two words, know thyself, are attributed to Socrates, but actually even older forms of the phrase have been found within ancient Egyptian stories and roots. Self-discovery, the knowledge of who one truly is, being assured of one's identity. All of this sounds very straightforward and helpful, doesn't it? Or does it? Dr. Benz Nene frames the difficulties facing us with knowing ourselves far better than I can or at least he did, in the February 13th, 2018 edition of Psychology Today. Listen to what Dr. Nene had to say about knowing ourselves. The problem is that none of this is based on a realistic picture of the self and of how we make decisions. He said, this whole knowing thyself business is not as simple as it seems. In fact, it might be a serious philosophical muddle not to say bad advice, there is a deep problem with this mental setup. People change. There are tumultuous periods of time, he goes on to say, when we change drastically in times of romantic love, say, or divorce, or having children. Often we are aware of these changes, after you've had kids, you probably notice that you've become suddenly a morning person. But most changes, Dr. Nene said, happen gradually and under the radar. A few 
Mechanisms of these changes are well understood, such as the mere exposure effect. The more you are exposed to something, the more you tend to like it. Another more troubling one is that the more your desire for something is frustrated, the more you tend to dislike it. These changes happen gradually, often without us noticing anything. The problem is this. If we change while our self-image remains the same, then there will be a deep abyss between who we are and who we think we are. And he concludes, and this leads to conflict. Hmm. Very wise words, in my experience, from Dr. Dene. What happens when our self-perception is wildly different from reality and how others, more importantly, how God perceives us? Dr. Nene said this leads to conflict. Conflict. Like this past Wednesday, many of the rioters who violently marched upon the Capitol building in Washington, D.C. call themselves patriots. But a patriot, according to Oxford Dictionary, is a person who vigorously supports their country and is prepared to defend it against enemies or detractors. And yet it does not take a vivid imagination to see that these folks were the enemies and detractors and not the supporters at that particular moment in history of their country. Their self-perception is not rooted in reality. When Donald Trump whipped this same mob into a frenzy and told them himself to go to the Capitol building, he did so because his perception of the truth and of himself is also, or was at least at that time, detached from reality. Later, after apparently being persuaded by others to address this angry mob and send them home, he said these words, and I quote, Even though I totally disagree with the outcome of the election, and the facts bear me out, Nevertheless, there will be an orderly transition on January 20th. I have always said we would continue our fight to ensure that only legal votes were counted. While this represents the end of the greatest first term in presidential history, it's only the beginning of our fight to make America great again. His words, not mine. Apparently, the president's ideas of what facts are, well, they're completely at odds with reality, at least in that statement. He makes several claims about himself, the elections of 2020 and making America great, and one cannot make these claims and maintain that they are valid when no evidence can be provided. The courts of law have rejected over 60 lawsuits, all of them, in fact, by those with the Trump campaign pertaining to voter fraud. The Attorney General of the United States, appointed by President Trump himself, investigated and determined there was no widespread voter fraud. It will be interesting to see if historians agree or disagree with President Trump's claim 
that this represents the end of the greatest first term in presidential history. I have a hunch that since the American people disagreed formally with their votes, presidential historians will disagree as well because that's where the evidence points. My point again is, where there is a detachment between our own perception of ourselves and who we truly are, as Dr. Nene from Psychology Today said, this leads to conflict. May God help our nation heal from these horrific recent conflicts. And when I say may God help, let us keep in mind that God's ordinary means of healing are through human hearts and hands. That's us, dear ones. May we be prepared to work to bring the healing our nation so desperately needs with God's help. Now, back to our gospel text from Mark chapter 1. Mark highlights exactly who Jesus truly was. In fact, he highlights something that might escape many modern readers of this text. Mark introduces Jesus onto the scene by saying, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. Nazareth was basically the equivalent of saying, Nowheresville. Galilee, on the other hand, was notorious. The northern border of Palestine, it was regarded with contempt and suspicion by most southern Jews. Galilee was surrounded by what Jewish people would have considered heathen cities, populated heavenly by Gentiles, predominantly poor, and was basically out of touch with proper Jewish culture and etiquette, according to the majority. And yet, just after Jesus comes up out of the baptismal waters, Mark narrates the story. And there was a voice from heaven saying, You are my son, whom I dearly love. In you I find happiness. Sandwiched between Advent and Lent, the baptism of our Lord's Sunday today gives us the chance to put all of that introspection we are supposed to be doing during Advent and Lent to work at long last. It gives us a chance to stare deeply into the self-reflection pool, the mirror, if you will, of the baptismal pool, like looking right into our soul. And, and once we've asked, am I really who I think I am? Is my self-perception in line with who God says I am? It gives us a chance to do something about it. And friends, here's the thing. God does say, you are beloved. It's the same response given to Jesus. You, my friend, each of you, are God's beloved child. In you, God is well pleased. That's God's vision for you, of you. That's God's dream. That's God's reality. That is who we will always be to God. No ifs and no buts, no asterisks, no question marks about it. No matter who you are, as we say, or where you are on life's journey, no matter who you love or where you've been or what you've done or not done, we are not defined by who anyone else says we are. We are defined by who God says we are. And we are beloved.
We are each of sacred worth, period. Nothing and no one can ever change that identity. However, how we express that, how we live that out in ways that translate to our neighbors and to ourselves, well, that is where the real work of discipleship awaits us. The vows we make upon our baptism in the Christian tradition can change shape a little bit from one denomination to the next, but all baptismal vows in most major historic Christian denominations contain a charge for us to reject and stand against evil, injustice, and oppression, and on the positive side of things, to incorporate the teachings of Jesus into our daily lives, and to do this all within the context of a community, just like this beloved church family we're part of. Many a theological argument has stemmed over the centuries from the story of Jesus' baptism. Now, usually these arguments over the centuries have stemmed from, you know, doctrinal type ideas, whether or not Jesus was sinless. I mean, why, some have asked, would a sinless person need to be baptized since it was so closely tied to repentance by John the Baptist and others? I certainly have my own ideas about this, but I don't intend to wade into those doctrinal arguments today. The more substantive thing worth noting to me is that Jesus himself either thought he needed to be baptized or else he wanted to for some reason. This seems to indicate a certain humility on his part, a certain admission that he still needed something from this moment, something from this holy act, to give him the foundation for launching his next chapter, which was his active ministry. Because that's exactly what happens after he's baptized. He gets to work. He gets to work healing the sick, preaching the good news to the poor, standing against evil and standing with the marginalized, speaking truth to power, afflicting the comfortable and comforting the afflicted. We, just like Jesus, are God's beloved children in whom God is well pleased. That will never, ever change. Let me say it to you again. No matter who we are, who we love, gay, straight, black, white, brown, Jewish, Christian, Muslim, Democrat, Republican, independent, God's love is unconditional for all people. But the question that nags at us is, or should. How closely does our lived identity align with God's unconditional love-based identity for all of us? In other words, do we walk the walk of courageous love in action? Do not hear this, my dear American Christians, through the lens of rugged individualism. Hear this as a people. We is the key with our baptism. And baptism is a communally-centered event and a shared calling as the people of God. Will we put in the work to be 
who we can be as a people? Will we cry alongside the one who has lost their mother or their aunt or their brother to COVID? Will we stand in order to reject evil and love and boldly do it and say to people, no, even when it's difficult, for example? It's not a matter of partisan political preference to support an angry mob storming the Capitol. It's evil. It's wrong. It's immoral. And President Trump was wrong for sending the mob to the Capitol. Will we love our neighbors boldly enough who choose information sources that are clearly not credible and choose to believe conspiracy theories and lies like mass voter fraud, among many others. Will we love that neighbor enough to say, I love you, but you are just plain wrong? Over 60 lawsuits and countless investigations show there was no widespread voter fraud. Feeling like there was voter fraud is not the same as there actually being voter fraud, so I'll stick with the evidence. Now, what's for dinner? Will we love our neighbors and ourselves enough to ask the hard questions and be willing to look into the mirror of the baptismal waters to see our own part in it? Will we ask difficult questions? Questions like, why is it that immediately following the early protests after the death of George Floyd, there were over 250 arrests, and yet this band of nearly all white rioters many of them armed, burst into the nation's capital and storm its doors, and less than 50 were arrested even after the death of one Capitol police officer. Now, I've heard many react after events like this and say things. I've said them myself. Well, this is not who we are as a nation. This just isn't us. But baptism, you see, calls us to wrestle with how reality lines up with, well, how our perception of reality lines up with objective reality. We have a large portion, this is the truth, of our population who cannot see the difference between black and brown people marching for their very lives and a mob of people who are angry because their candidate lost a fair election violently storming the nation's capital to express their frustration. After bathing themselves in countless conspiracy theories until they at long last believed they were the truth. This is, at the very least, part of who we are right now as a nation. But dear church, who are we? Who are we? as the people of God. We can see where silence and niceness and politeness and complicity have gotten us, and have gotten many families of faith, for that matter, who have allowed partisan politics to guide them more than the vows of their baptisms. Will we allow, as the people of God, our vows to stand against evil and to stand for truth to mean something more than just personal, privatized salvation of the soul for the purpose of an afterlife? Will we allow the responsibilities we share as the people of God to call us into love and action, to actively address what is eating the soul of our nation at this very moment? God says, we are beloved. 
But who do we act like we are as the people of God? It's probably a mixed answer. But God's unconditional love of us can either be a cosmic-sized, rose-colored set of glasses, or it, be it can become mirrored more and more in our lived identity, reality. Knowing ourselves, well, yes, that's very important. But being who God says we are now, that's life and world-changing. We may never fully, in fact, we will never fully live into 100% of who God says we are. But by the grace of God, let us continue striving to embody all that God says we can be. More than Democrats, more than Republicans, more than our ideologies of every kind, even more than Americans. We are God's beloved people in whom God is well pleased, and God's love is what compels us upward and onward in this struggle for our true identity as a people. Thanks be to the one who loves us as we are, and yet also loves us into being even better. Amen.